Good morning. My name is Michael Glenn. I'm the worship pastor here at New Hope Church. Our senior pastor, Mark Kring, has been um, taking some extended time off. Uh, Mark and I actually had a brief text interaction this week, and he confirmed with me that his time off is producing the desired result that we'd all hope for him, which is he's feeling refreshed, and he will be back next week with us. Uh, I'm just hoping he doesn't come back and think we need a drastic change in worship leadership. That's just got my fingers crossed on that one. Um, every, uh, the last couple times, church, that I've been in this pulpit, I've had the opportunity, we've been examining Psalm 103. And this morning, we're going to be in verses 13 through 19. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 103. Um, and we're going to spend a few minutes first. I want to lay some groundwork about where we're going in this text, and then we'll pray and dig in. Psalm 103 is loaded, is loaded with beautiful pictures of God's grace. It's a song that was, would have been sung, um, and it was sung to remember and celebrate the blessings of God. That's what Psalm 103 is. And Psalm thir- uh, the verses 13 through 19 are no different in that regard. However, uh, these verses that we're looking at today do represent something of the next verse of the song. There's a little bit of a shift in, shift in some uh, concepts and themes there. In fact, um, the last time I was with you, I said that I needed to skip something over because there just wasn't enough time. And that very thing was this that beginning in verse 11 and then repeated a few times in the verses we're looking at, you see, God makes demands. God sets conditions for the receiving of blessing. Do you, do you like it when somebody demands something from you? Listen up. Get off Instagram. See what I did there? Okay, all right. Most of the blessings in 103 that we have outlined there don't have any conditions at all. Um, but this, um, these verses do, and we're going to go right at them, church. So let's get started. Um, Psalm 103 is a song of praise, as I said, focused on remembering the blessings of God. Beginning in verse 11, God introduces conditions for the receiving of blessing. Those conditions are that we fear God. That's mentioned three times in the psalm, three times, verses 11, 13, and 17, that we keep his covenant and remember his precepts. Those are both in verse 18. So what specifically are the blessings that we receive if these demands are met? Well, I'm gonna put verses 17 through 19 up on the screen. I'm not gonna read them. I'm just gonna briefly touch on what it is. If you look at verses 17 through 19, God is offering to bless you with eternal life. That's what it says. The Lord's loving kindness from everlasting to everlasting is on who? Those who fear him. So the only way you can receive a blessing forever is if you live forever. Do you see that? And even in in the original language of the psalm, I'm not going to put the word up on the screen, but in Hebrew, the word on has a shade of meaning that's not clear in the English. So it's not, it doesn't mean just to give or to set on. Um, The word on conveys abundance, right? So if everlasting, if from everlasting to everlasting wasn't enough, God promises to give it to you in abundance. 
abundant, eternal loving kindness in an established, permanent kingdom. That's where we're going. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I pray for our time together and as I often do, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make clear where I may not be, that we would feel the weight of the glory of who you are, that you would stir up in us a desire to pursue you, and to not turn away from you. So bless the rest of this time that we have together, God, and receive all the glory and honor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want us to read our entire block of text today together, but I, I don't want us to just do it casually. I have an assignment for you, if, if you will. I want you to pay attention to the contrast in this psalm. Uh, the psalmist is about to describe people, human beings, and then contrast it with a description of God. Okay, let's start at verse 13. We're going right through it. Look for the contrast. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower in the field, so he flourishes, and when the wind passes over it, it is no more. And it place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. God remembers forming the first person. If you're looking at 14 through 16. God remembers forming Adam out of the dust and then he, he breathed the breath of life into Adam. And then we had a lot of births, deaths, births, deaths, births, deaths, births, 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 births and here we are. We are made of the same stuff. God is mindful, church, that we are fragile and that we are temporary. That's with all that grass in the field. That's poetic, beautiful poetic words that, that describe a fragile and temporary state of human beings. Do you all agree with me here? Human beings, fragile, we're temporary. Charles Spurgeon said on these verses, the grass lives, grows, flowers, falls beneath the scythe. By the way, I had to look up how to pronounce that, so if I did it wrong, you can correct me later. Dries up and is removed from the field. Read this sentence over again and you will find it, the history of man. Now I told you God remembers forming Adam, but, but it's, the word is mindful. He doesn't just remem uh, remember. He understands the implications of your fragileness and temporariness better than anybody. It implies compassion. That's what mindful means. He knows. He knows you're fragile. He knows you're temporary and he cares. And the word mindful, with the word mindful, our psalmist opens the door for us to maybe find out what God intends to do about it. 
What is God going to do about our fragile temporariness in light of understanding us? We're fragile and temporary. But, and the psalmist just puts the word right there at the front of verse 17 so you don't miss it. Uh, the psalmist wants us to be thinking about the contrast between human beings and God. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting and those who fear him. We read these verses already. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. So while we are fragile and temporary, on the other hand, God is from everlasting to everlasting. Meaning, very simple, if you look back in time, he lasts forever. If you look forward in time, he lasts forever. God's loving kindness is eternal. And God's throne is established. Notice where it's established. It's in the heavens. You know what this means? This throne exists where no human being no nation, no power, no political action group. You can't even get there. It's out of your reach. It's not even possible for a human being to unseat God out of his throne. It's permanent. It's established. That is some contrast, right? Fragile, temporary, eternal, and established. In uh, 1996, I transferred from the University of Iowa to Aristotle, Arizona State University to study jazz piano, which we can all agree was a wise financial decision. <laughs> and when I got there, I noticed something about my freshman class, and, and you know, I can't speak for them, but I can definitely tell you that this was something that happened with me, is, and I'm not trying to brag here or nothing, but when you, know, when you get into a, a university, especially, a, you know, had a reputation, and a great professor, and uh, the freshman class is full of musicians that back in their high schools, like we were among the best musicians in our high school. We, we all were. And we get to this university setting and it doesn't take long. You start interacting with your professors in theory class and history class. And you have a series of experiences that would describe like this, goes like this. Oh, I know very little. <laughs> I know very little. And then there comes that day when you have your first jazz piano class where um, you get to sit down with your piano professor uh, who, in my case, also happened to be the head of the entire department of the jazz uh, school at Arizona State University. He was the piano teacher. And you play something, and then you get off the bench. He comes and sits down and plays something after you, which quietly in your head, you're like, why did they even let me in here? Like. This guy is playing, I don't even understand what's going on right now. And what does that contrast to? It humbles you, doesn't it? The, the contrast that the psalmist is pointing out in our psalm of our fragileness, our temporariness, and contrasting to God's everlastingness and permanence is humbling. It's humbling. But it also serves, church, it also serves to emphasize the beauty of the blessing. The beauty of the blessing. You see, the temporary can experience eternal love. And the fragile can rest in an established kingdom. It can be done if if, remember I told you, these two blessings are contingent 
on three things. The temporary and the fragile, the grass and the field thing, blessed with eternity and strength, if we fear God, keep his covenant, and remember his precepts. Remembering his precepts, by the way, just means obeying his commandments, same thing. So don't be afraid, church. Do not want you to be afraid right now. The conditions and the demands of God are nothing like you experienced with demands and conditions with relationships you have with other people. These are demands and conditions that are from and of God. He's different. They are of his nature. Here, here's some low-hanging fruit. What would you not do for $100 billion on which you never had to pay taxes? Hopefully nothing ungodly, how ironic, but I throw it out there to re reinforce something implicit in the psalm, to receive the everlasting loving kindness of God is beyond appraisal. You cannot attach a number enough to equal its value. What wouldn't you do for eternal life? God's asking that we fear, keep his covenant, and obey. So we've seen how we are fragile and temporary. We've been told God is eternal and established. And God is connecting us. He's bridging that gap between our fragileness and his permanence. Fearing, keeping the covenant, obeying his commandments. Now we're gonna spend most of the rest of our time looking at what it means to fear God. And this is why. I've always been fascinated with the concept of fearing God, really. Uh, maybe at a distance even. I've always kind of felt like I understood what it meant, but in the process of preparing this message, it became very clear to me that the, the biblical understanding of the fear of God, those roots in my mind did not go very deep. And so that's kind of where all we're headed. Um, we are instructed to fear God 10 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. Uh, fearing God is associated in scripture with wisdom, prosperity, worship, obedience, as we see in our psalm, and get this, get this, our survival. <laughs> Fear God if you want to live. Because I don't think people understand the fear of God much anymore these days. I, I don't, especially I'm not sure how, how how much it's adhered to. Would you not agree? So about two years ago, my wife convinced me that we should get a family dog. Now, I had been resistant on that because I had four children, and the way that I looked at it, I had enough mouths to feed and butts to clean up after. I didn't need to add to that equation. Um, but part of what pushed me over the edge was that Marla's aunt bred German shepherds. So we welcomed Kaiser into our home. And I had never had a dog as like an adult, like had a dog as a kid, but never one that was like mine. And the, the thing, the biggest surprise about training this animal was just how much its, its breed impacted its nature. Uh, it, uh, the dog is a German shepherd, okay? And um, I, I quickly found out just how much shepherd was in this dog. There's a lot of shepherd in this dog. Took me a, lo a little longer to figure out the German part. And this is what I figured about the German. This is for free, by the way. The, the, this is the German part. Like, I would say things like, no, no, sit, 
and I get nothing. If I went, nine, Satan, nine, you know, like that, the dog just perked up. And by the way, I feel like I have a right to say that because my mom's side of the family is German as far as the eye can see, so I don't think that was a lot of cultural appropriation going on. I'm just throwing it out there. Kaiser, as a shepherd, is very protective of his people and his place. He's very protective. That's what shepherd dogs are bred to do. Um, now, one evening, my wife and I were, were relaxing, watching some TV. I was sitting on the floor, I had my back up against the sofa, and I was boiling a glass bowl of water in the microwave because I had blown up a cheese dip in there earlier. Anybody ever done that? Anyway, so if you, bo if you, if you boil water in the microwave, it just makes it easier to wipe off the crusty cheese off your microwave. Now, what I know now, but I did not know then, is that some water had to have gotten trapped between the glass dish that I was boiling the water in and then the glass rotator. Brrr, you guys know what I'm talking about? And so it, late at night, fading, kind of half asleep. I have no idea where my dog is. It's late enough that he's probably somewhere off in the house sleeping. And the water between there boils. And what I'm pretty sure now had happened is it threw the glass dish in the, in the microwave, and it made a sound, a very sudden, scary sound. Uh, and so I, I jumped up um, off the floor, and I, I had no idea what had happened. It, it sounded like somebody could have kicked in a door, somebody threw a brick through a window or something. I had no idea what was going on, but I'm dad, right? So I jump up off the couch, and I walk towards the sound, the scary sound that I heard, and I'm not kidding you, about two or three quick steps towards the sound, I heard another terrifying sound. I look down at my left leg and my German shepherd is walking lockstep with me. His teeth are bared. I had never seen him. I had never seen him bare his teeth before. He is baring his teeth and he is growling like, like a deep, I can't even make the sound. That dog can sound like a bear. All right. I actually have a picture of him. Uh, Brian, can we throw that up there to give you an idea? So there he is with my wife. That's not why I showed the picture. I just wanted you to see. Yeah, he is cute. But he is a big animal. Okay, he's a big animal. And he is just teeth bared, growling. And I suddenly became quite confident in the situation. <laughs> I think that myself, man, if somebody did kick down a door, I am confident that Kaiser would be more than competent to convince them to leave, okay? <laughs> so that's because Kaiser is a German, say it with me, shepherd. Jesus is the good, say it with me, shepherd. Now, most times that I see Jesus depicted as a shepherd, you know, he's clean, he's fair-skinned, he's cuddling some cute little lamb. But, but, the, but this, the shepherd lived with the sheep in the wilderness, and their primary responsibility was to protect the sheep. Shepherds would carry, uh, they call them rods, but just think of a club, a big club. And oftentimes at the, the nub end of that club, they would put nails into those things so that the shepherd can confront and deal with any animal that might be looking for a quick meal. All right, David once killed a lion while on shepherd duty. 
and he did not have a rifle, people. Jesus is a shepherd. He's with his sheep, and he's there primarily to protect them. Would anybody dare trying to take one of his sheep? Holy, this is the God of all the universe. There's no limit to his competence, to his capacity, to his strength, to his power. Ain't nobody is going to get his sheep. Never. Bible says so. No one can snatch you out of his hand. When the Bible says no one can snatch you out of hand, what it's saying is that your shepherd, wow, I almost said something inappropriate. Your shepherd is capable. He's fierce. There's a good word, fierce. Now, part of fearing God is definitely humbling, acknowledging that he is worthy to be feared. Amen? That's, that's where I wanted us to start. Of course he's worthy to be feared. That doesn't make any sense. Oftentimes, though, fearing God is taught in a manner that declares that fearing God is purely reverence and awe and maybe respect. Maybe, you, maybe you've heard that. Now, in fact, a sermon that I listened to just this week from a pulpit that I very much respect, by the way, very much so, basically took this approach. And, and the, the preacher used the metaphor of an ocean, right? You're not afraid of the ocean. You're drawn to the ocean. But is anybody willing to ride out a hurricane in a kayak? So, no. And that would mean that you properly fear the Lord, meaning you purely respect it or revere it. I once heard a pastor teach fearing God in that same manner using a lawnmower. That hurts my heart a little bit. And I don't remember who did that, so if it was a friend of mine and you're listening, I'm sorry, let's have lunch and chat. But the ocean lawnmower approach to understanding the fear of God always bothered me. It's always like, eh, eh, I don't think God's like a lawnmower, dude. Um, and this is why. Because all of the original languages, three of them, that are the, the original biblical texts are written, they all have perfectly good words for reverence, awe, and respect. It's not like there's some coded weird meaning about those words in fear. They are different from fear. And the word fear is all over the Bible. Fearing God necessarily involves reverence and awe and respect. I'm not saying otherwise. It necessarily involves it, but it doesn't stop there. There is no hidden meaning to the word fear in the original biblical text. I'm just here to tell you right now. When you read fear God, there's not some sort of metaphorical underlying language thing going on. There might be some cultural things going on. I don't have time to get into that. But the word is the word, okay? I'm gonna step away from the podium here again a little bit and reason with you a bit. Um, because I think sometimes we even have a hard time thinking about a God who wants us to fear anything at all. Am I the only one that has sometimes asked myself, is this fearing God? Nobody? I'm the only guy? All right, I'm going forward with this illustration anyway because I think it's important. I think we need to open up our minds as to why God even would, would 
that he would want us to fear. Uh, many years ago now, I'm trying to think about when, my wife may remember, it's like maybe 20 years ago or so, um, uh, somebody gave us two tickets to one of those success seminars. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, get rich and do it this way kind of thing. And I'm a Jesus guy. I really didn't want to go to the success seminar. Um, but my wife was pregnant at the time. It wasn't feeling up to it. The tickets were gifts. You know what that means. I have to go. I had to go and represent that kind of thing. And I'm actually really glad that I went. And this is why. The presenter was a former Navy SEAL. And he actually spoke quite a bit about fear. And, and you know what he said? This is what he said. Fear is good. And I'm sitting there like, okay, buddy. You know, he said that he wouldn't want to be in a battle with someone that had like a no fear attitude. He wouldn't even want to be with that person. Why? Because fear can compel you to do extraordinary things. Fear is good when it compels you to do extraordinary things. Fear is also good. Fear can make you, uh, ma help you make better decisions. Can help you make better decisions. So can we please accept a God who in a very, very specific sense, which, which we're gonna dig in deep in, in scripturally right after this, that we can accept a God who wants us to fear. Maybe he's interested in compelling us to something extraordinary, or maybe he wants us to make better decisions. All right, here's a big one. Then what do we do with all the fear not stuff in the Bible? Right? Fear God, fear God, fear not, fear not, fear God, fear God, fear not. Have you ever wondered how to reconcile these things? Okay, me too, me too. Do you know that there are 365 fear not statements in the Bible? Precisely one for every day of the year. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna read all 365. I'm gonna have them put up on the, I'm kidding. Just making sure you're on your toes. We did lose half our live stream audience when I said that though, probably this time. How about two? Two, agreed? All right, we're gonna do two. They're doozies though. So we've talked about that God is worthy to be feared. We agreed with that. He is the good shepherd. He is fierce. He's worthy to be feared. Now what we wanna look at is, uh, but, but the Bible says fear not. What does that mean? All right, this is what your savior has to say about that in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not be afraid of anything up to and including being killed. Now, I get it. We, we may fear a difficult situation. We may fear sharing the gospel maybe with somebody at work. I'm not trying to diminish the experience that we might have in all, our culture with what it means. But Jesus says that we are not to fear everything all the way up and including being killed. Fear instead. Interesting. Jesus is saying, yeah, fear is good. Fear instead him it's not up there anymore, but in your text, if your Bible translation is accurate, that word him will be capitalized. Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, Satan does not have any power to put you in hell. Jesus is not referencing Satan. He's not saying fear Satan. That's not it. The Bible tells us to resist Satan. That doesn't sound like fear to me. 
Jesus is saying this, and this is big. This is big. Fear God and only God. That's it. When God says, fear me, what comes along with that is that you are to only fear God. Now, Jesus said it pretty clearly, and we can move on uh, right now. Uh, fear God, and we are not supposed to fear literally anything else, okay? But there's one more verse I really want to, to share with you because um, it really got me excited in my study this week. And it's out of the book of Exodus, okay? And remember, Mark preached on the Exodus of uh, the nation of Israel out of Egypt not long before he took his vacation. They're, they're terrific. You can go back and check them out. But if you remember, right, Moses goes to the Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, plagues, plagues, plagues. And then Pharaoh eventually relents. He lets the people out. And where does the nation of Israel find themselves but th at the base of Mount Sinai? It's a mountain in the wilderness. And a dramatic unfolding of the glory of God occurs on this mountain. What the Bible describes that day was like is astonishing. Perhaps one of the most intimidating and powerful physical displays of God's glory recorded in the Bible. And as a result, the people at the base of the mountain are terrified. What is Moses' response? Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Moses says, do not be afraid so that the fear of him may remain. What is going on? I love this. The reason or object referenced it the fear, the reason the fear, object of the fear at the beginning of the verse is something different than the reason or object of fear at the end. The nation of Israel, okay, was afraid of, and in their defense, I think you would be too. This is what they were afraid of. This is the reason or the object when he says, do not be afraid. A mountain engulfed in flames, pillars of smoke, rising up to heaven, a terrifying, thunderous voice coming out of heaven, earthquakes, and the piercing sound of an angel's trumpet. Now, you know, we read these things in the Bible. Sometimes I think it's like, you know, was anybody here just sitting there going, ah, I'd be cool with that? <laughs> no. Like, what if the roof just blew off this place right now and, and just like supernatural fire started swirling over our heads. I think we'd be cleaning some of these chairs. That's what I think would happen. Okay? This is terrifying. And Moses response, church, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid even of the physical manifestations of the glory of God. Fear God and God alone. That, right? I laughed the first time I really understood that, not because it's funny, but just how glorious that is. Do you realize the extent to which God does not want you to fear? I mean, like what, are, 
only one thing. If, you know, let's just step aside and just reason again with you a little bit. If I could somehow guarantee, it's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. If you blank, 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 for the rest of your life, you can just pick one thing, and that's the only thing you'll ever fear. I'd be like, yeah, I'm in. Sign the dotted line. Like, what if there was a pill? My wife screams every time she sees a spider in my house. What if I could just give her? I thought, anyway, right? It's reasonable that we would be drawn to a God even though he's giving us commands and demands and conditions, the closer we get to the heart of what these demands really are, the more beautiful they seem to be, amen? God never, never uses fear not in reference to himself in the Bible. You can scour that thing all you want. You will never see anywhere where it says, do not fear God. And also, every single time you see, do not be afraid, it is never in reference to God himself, ever. God himself is the one thing God demands that we fear. That's it. And I told you the conditions, the demands of God are different than the conditions and the demands that we experience as human people in relationships with one another. So think about it this way. God is worthy to be feared, amen? We are to only fear God, nothing else. New hope Fear God, who pardons all your iniquities. Fear the God who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God is good. God is good is love. There is no unrighteousness in him. He is holy. You cannot say that about anything or anyone else that you could fear. God is worthy to be feared. And now we know that he is the only thing. There is one more clarifying biblical truth that I think is very important to our study. And this may be the one that might be new to you. And it's very evident in what I would call a companion chapter with Psalm 103. So we're going to look at Jeremiah 32. Uh, Jeremiah 32 is a prophetic part of the Bible. But this is the important part. This prophecy was written before Christ about Christ. So we can read these verses and we can directly apply them to us right now because we live on this side of Jesus Christ, on this side, time-wise, of the cross. Listen to uh, Jeremiah 32. They shall be my people. That's us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is what Jeremiah is writing about. They shall be my people, God says, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them I will make an everlasting covenant Jesus did that by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the grave and with with them that I will not turn away from them God says to do them good, here it comes, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that, here it is, they will not 
turn away from me. Fearing God, biblically, is the fear of turning away from him. Biblically, fearing God is fearing turning away from him. So there you go. You have absolutely nothing to fear in your pursuit of God, in your study of the word, in, in, in abiding in Christ, in experience the life in the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because that is seeking God. That's, you, don't, you do not have to fear that at all. That's exactly what God wants. In fact, in an eternal sense, the safest thing that you could do is pursue God. Practically now, okay? Practically. By the way, this not turning from God, this is, this is really the street level understanding of what it means to fear God. I love this. Um, practically, what does that mean? Well, this is where the intersection of fearing, I'm get, about to get to covenant, but remembering precepts and obedience comes into play, all right? So we are to fear God. We are not to turn away from God. Well, what are his precepts and his commands? Just, we can just think of a couple, right? Love one another, okay? Care for the poor and the widows. Do justice, love mercy, forgive. We could go on and on. Turning, though, would be hate. It would be exacting revenge. Praying on the helpless. That's turning away from God. Wouldn't you just naturally, I mean, maybe this doesn't come to you, you see something on your TV, and you're like, how, how can somebody be so evil? Don't they fear God? The theological mechanism that allows you to think that is that person in being evil is turning from God's way. And God sees it. And you know what God says? You ought to be afraid of doing that. Do the changes in our society, culture, and politics bother you? No one's honest? <laughs> I know it bothers some of you because you talk to me about it. Do not fear them. Do not fear them. Based on everything we just looked at, fear allowing those changes to change you. You should fear allowing those changes to, to seduce you away from the almighty God who loves you. God has told you what is good and just and right. God is the safest thing to pursue and the most dangerous thing to dismiss. He's the safest thing to pursue and the most dangerous thing to dismiss. This is especially true, here comes our third condition, of covenant. It's very dangerous to dismiss the new covenant. God's agreement with his people, that was, that's what covenant means. The new covenant church is important because it acknowledge, acknowledges and reconciles something that as of now has been left unsaid in all of our work on understanding what it means to fear God. Did you notice in the psalm, it doesn't ask us, God doesn't demand that we mostly fear him. God doesn't say, hey, I'll bless you with fear in your life if you fear me most of the time. The everlasting loving kindness 
is for those that fear God as in perfect devotion to God. No turning. There has been and there will ever only be one person who lived a life from conception to death, and I'll give you a hint on who it is, and resurrection, who perfectly embodied full devotion to God. And that person is Jesus Christ. This is our last slide. I'm going to put it up there and let it, let it sink in a little bit. I tried to summarize this the best I could. The everlasting covenant is receiving Jesus' perfectly God-fearing sacrifice on the cross for our inability to perfectly fear God. Jesus perfectly feared God, but died because we didn't. I'm gonna say that one more time and finish the thought. The everlasting covenant is receiving Jesus' perfectly God-fearing sacrifice on the cross for our inability to perfectly fear God. If we do, God will bless us with an everlasting loving kindness as if we had. Meaning, in Christ, the new covenant, the expectations, the demands, the conditions ultimately have been met for you. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, is as certain as it is impossible to change the past because it is already done. I want to take a minute to reinforce the concept that Pastor Gary Post touched on last week in his message. I was driving back from up north and I was listening in the car and I really appreciated something he said that I also think can apply to us today. He was talking specifically about how God saves us. If you were here, you might remember. So he said this, something along these lines, that we are saved once. There is a moment in time that God chose you if you are a believer and he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. That's a one-time thing. But we are to not go on living as though God isn't working in our lives to save us every day. In other words, to use my words now, there are things that are eternal principles that in, in the practical day-to-day -day walk of our life, even though Jesus completes them, they're still functional in our life with God, Right? The same could be said about fearing him. Just because Jesus has met the perfect condition of fearing God and died because we weren't does not mean that, we, that God did not undo his desire for us to fear him. And I think this is obvious, but I just had to say it before you're wrapped up. The whole reason I went through explaining fear of God to you because if you grabbed it, it's everything. Do not turn from God's way. There is abundant, everlasting loving kindness for you. There is a connection made between your fragileness and temporariness to God's eternalness and established kingdom. There is rest there. So fear God, church. Fear God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you are you have preserved for us such a beautiful picture of your gospel in just one psalm.
God, I pray that we would be a people eager to pursue you, that we would rejoice in this new covenant, that we would receive you, Lord Jesus, and honor you for what you've done on our behalf to connect us with the eternal love of God. Now, God, as we walk day to day, may we be aware of your goodness to us and may it compel us, may your kindness, your graciousness compel us to seek you and only you to keep us from turning away. Bless this people, oh Lord God, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great day, New Hope Church. God bless.